Welcome back to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. He will be neonatologist Dr. Aaron DeWeese from Southern Indiana talking about infant mortality and uh, advances in treating the premature babies that are born earlier and earlier. Yes, I, I was excited to <coughs> hear about the, the advances that are being made, and I want to talk to him about that. Before we get into it, we wanted to go over some of the basic definitions, a little of the epidemiology <coughs> of infant mortality. So that, that's really the idea of children that are dying before their first birthday. Uh, right. That is what infant mortality is. Neonates refer to the first 28 days of life or roughly the first month of life. Now, the U.S. has the most expensive health care per capita in the world. You know, nobody pays more. So therefore, we should have the lowest infant mortality in the world, right? Well, that's what everybody says. Um, but, you know, judging by the, the international statistics, we are not doing so hot in that category. So if you look at the 36 countries who are part of the OECD, I didn't know what it stood for either, Organization for Economic Cooperation Development. So these are wealthy countries. So the wealthiest countries in the world are the top 36 wealthiest countries. Where do we rate? Number 33. So our infant mortality rate is 5.9 deaths per 1,000 live births. That means by one year after a thousand babies were born, almost six of them will have died. And that's, you know, obviously it's it's a small number, but it's a bad number all the same because for those six kids, it's it's a hundred percent for Exactly. Them. And among those, you know, 39 wealthiest countries, the average rate is about four or 3.9 per thousand births. Now, the best states in the country are up in the northeast corner, the upper right-hand part of the country in New Hampshire and Vermont. They have 3.9 deaths per thousand live births, which is the same as the average of all the 39 wealthiest countries. The worst state, Mississippi, 8.9. Poor and Mississippi gets picked on all the time. They do. It's Life's not fair, Mississippi. <laughs> we agree. So our rate in the United States is 75% higher than the average of 20 comparable uh, wealthy countries. Uh, the, it's astounding. The The country that uh, did the worst in that group was Mexico, and their rate was 12. Right. And I, I was uh, surprised and intrigued to see the country that did the best at less than one was actually Iceland. Yes. And they, they've made news uh, recently also about eliminating Down syndrome, didn't they? Yeah, they, they say they've eliminated it because they abort all those babies born with it. I, I wonder know. what they're doing to keep their infant mortality rates down. Uh, and it's a, it's a small country, too. Uh, that's a good question. You know, Finland was the next best at like one and a half. And then Norway, Sweden, all those um, Nordic countries are doing well at around two. So that's pretty impressive for what they have going on. Uh, the, now, if we put this in perspective of the world as a whole, whereas the mortality rate in the United States would be 6 out of 1,000. Worldwide, it's about 40 out of 1,000. Isn't that so scary? That, that takes into account, obviously, all the third world countries and areas that are not quite as well developed. I'm sorry. I said that wrong. That's, that's child mortality. So there's a different – and child mortality is deaths before the fifth birthday. Okay. So, so that's 40 out of a – or yeah, 4% or 40 out of 1,000 globally. For the United States, that rate is about 7 out of 1,000. Okay, gotcha. So, okay. so roughly one more child dies between the age of one and five because the, the rate for the United States was uh, nearly six per thousand, and it's seven per thousand by age five, so, so one extra. It's kind of a parallel statistic. Tom, do you know how we do compared to other, other of the developed countries in that statistic? I do not have that data, but we do better compared to those other countries than we do in the infant mortality. We don't lose as many between the ages of one and five. Gotcha. So it's, it seems as though this infant mortality is a place where the U.S. can definitely improve, and we're hoping to learn about that from Dr. DeWeese. Oh, oh, absolutely. You know, a way that the rest of the world can catch up on child and infant mortality uh, where they're doing poorly is actually uh, some pretty simple things. 
continuous breastfeeding for first six months of life, uh, vaccinations, and better nutrition. I mean, very simple things, which unfortunately are not getting to everybody who needs them. It's, it's interesting when you bring up things that simple. It's, they're really things that we kind of take for granted, I think. You know, a lot of people would just assume and actually, you know, one of the things we see in this country is a lot of folks declining some things like vaccinations and they're kind of taking it for granted that if there's a problem, you could go to the hospital and frequently receive care. Lots of parts of the world, that's not possible. It, it, it is not. In um, <clears throat> an interesting uh, infant mortality, it is improving in every country of the world. So if you look in 1990, there were 9 million infants, so that's human beings less than one, who died. 25 years later in 2015, it was half of that. So it had improved all over uh, the world from 65 deaths per thousand live births to only 29 deaths per thousand live births 25 years later. So it does continue to improve everywhere that we look. One of the things that I kind of pulled up to, to set the stage for the show was just the leading causes of this infant death. Yes. And I'm hoping to delve into these more in our interview, but kind of the, the top few, number one was congenital malformations or chromosomal abnormalities. So problems with the baby uh, that, that is to be born. And we already talked about the number or the first chromosomal cause of, um, of malformations in human beings was discovered uh, back, I believe, in the 50s with uh, trisomy 21. With Dr. Lejeune. Yep. Uh, Down syndrome. Near and dear to our heart. Yes. So congenital malformations is the number one leading cause. Number two would be prematurity or low birth weight, really tiny and very young babies. Number three would be SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, and it's uh, associated uh, similar categories. Uh, the fourth would be death due to maternal complications with delivery. And then the last one would be unintentional injuries. I guess that would be accidents. Yep. There's always the accident category. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to highlight before we get into our interview was the, the bit about SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Are you pretty familiar with that, Tom? Uh, not as familiar as some parents who've had a child die of it. It's, it's pretty sad. It's a, a sad thing. And we call it infant death syndrome because a lot of times we don't know exactly what's going on. If you can identify a cause of uh, what we would call positional asphyxiation or if the baby suffocated or was smothered, um, then it wouldn't necessarily fit into the SIDS category. But SIDS is one of the things that we really focus on as far as education's especially taking newborns home. And the American Academy of, of Pediatrics has a list of things to do for safe sleep to help prevent sudden infant death syndrome. <clears throat> yeah, I just saw a picture uh, within the last couple of days of a little baby with a shirt on that says, I sleep belly up. Yes, I saw that too. That's kind <laughs> of a new, a new uh, program and a new campaign that they're working on. And that's where you get the idea of baby sleep on their back or sleep belly up. And that's one of the biggest things. They actually, they did a study in the early 90s that first identified this, that started the whole back-to-sleep campaign, looking at uh, infant uh, death, sudden infant death syndrome in Japan versus, I think, Australia and Great Britain. And there was a huge difference. And they, they narrowed it down, basically, that the, the Japanese babies were sleeping on their back on a firm surface, and the other babies in Australia and Great Britain were sleeping frequently on their bellies on a softer or more comfortable surface. And that made a statistical, the biggest statistical difference, the, the stomach or the back to sleep. And it's fascinating because <clears throat> a tidbit that we gave many episodes ago was that if somebody passes out from drinking, the position you're supposed to put them in is, is the opposite. They're either on their side or their stomach with their head turned to the side so that they don't gag on you know, something that they might throw up. That's, that's actually a good point. It's, it's interesting. With the babies, the, the biggest thing, especially for the little ones, is that their core strength and their neck muscles are so weak, they can't right themselves if they were to become smothered. You know, so that's the number one thing is sleeping on their back. The number two thing is to not have other stuff in the crib or the bassinet with them. Things like blankets, stuffed animals, that little pillow that Aunt So-and-So knitted for you. <laughs> you know, they're very cute for pictures, but you want to make sure those are out of the crib because those are the things that can pre prevent, present hazards, rather. Um, even one of the things I, I know I, I saw growing up with my siblings was the bumpers that you put around yes, the crib. Yes, yes. And those have been found to be a risk as well. 
Oh, my goodness. So uh, to keep them warm, you just have to dress them warm, not use blankets. Yep, not use blankets. And, and swaddling is very appropriate as long as they're not rolling over. So it's okay to have them in a nice, firm swaddle as long as they're still on their back. Well, you've heard it from Andrew on SIDS. We're going to delve more deeply into some of these topics with uh, Dr. DeWeese. But first, our patented medical trivia question of the day. After spending five months in a neonatal intensive care unit in San Diego, the world's smallest baby survived to go home for the first time. The baby's name was Sabi. She was born 17 weeks early, or at 23 weeks. The question, at birth, did she weigh more or less than these following items? More or less than a can of soda pop? More or less than the average cucumber? More or less than the short cup of coffee? More or less than a pint of blood? And finally, more or less than five Krispy Kreme donuts. You're going to have to wait till the end of the show for the answer, but we'll be back with you after the break here on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to our special guest today on Dr. Doctor. He is Aaron DeWeese, a neonatologist. He's the medical director of the NICU, that's Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, and Perinatal Services at Ascension St. Vincent Hospital in Evansville, Indiana. He was formerly chair of their ethics committee, and he's an active member of the Catholic Medical Association. He was raised in two K-states, Kansas and Kentucky, went to medical school in Louisville, and did his residency in the Army at the San Antonio Military Pediatric Center. He did his fellowship in neonatology at the University of Louisville and spent 12 years in the U.S. Army between active duty and National Guard training, including a little trip to the sandbox in Iraq in 2007. He lives in Newburgh, Indiana with his wife, Courtney, six children ages 3 to 15, and they are radicals like Andrew and me, and they homeschool their children. <laughs> Aaron DeWeese, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Uh, thank you guys for having me. Aaron, why is it that the United States, with all of its resources and all of its medical knowledge, ranks near the bottom of the developed world in infant mortality? Uh, I think it's a great question. Um, I think it surprises a lot of people to know that we, you know, we do rank, you know, somewhere 33rd out of, you know, 36 countries in infant mortality. Um, you know, I, th I think it's a, it's a relatively complex issue. I think there are some straightforward answers to it. Um, but there are some kind of nuances that, that do get buried in the statistics. Um, the straightforward part, you know, I would probably say is, you know, we do have a, a significant issue with obesity in the United States. And, and we definitely know that uh, there's, there's a lot of complications that occur, one of them being potential for preterm birth, um, other issues related to you know, maternal health, pregnancy complications, and obesity, uh, smoking is, is another. Um, other just disparities in prenatal care among you know, the population, you know, there's a significant disparity in race uh, from when you look at infant mortality. Um, as well as even within our country, you know, some of the, the, lo the places that have, um, you know, they're not as strong ec economically tend to have higher infant mortality. So, so it's, it's kind of taken as a whole when you average across uh, the, the whole. See, that's a, that's a really interesting point you bring up, that a lot of these are patient factors. The, the way a lot of people, in the, that statistic strikes me, sounds like America's doing something wrong despite spending so much money, but it sounds like a lot of it are the patients that come to you guys. And maybe would it be safe to say if you were a premature infant, would you rather be in America than someplace else? You know, I don't think so. Um, and, and that's where I think some of the nuances come into play. So, so one of the things that oftentimes gets buried in the statistics um, that, you know, infant mortality includes everything up to the 364th day of life. So it's, it's in that first year of life. But of those, 66% are neonatal deaths. So they're deaths that occur in the first 27 days or 28 days. Now, what happens in, some, uh, in other countries? So in the United States, really anything, any ch baby born um, at 20 weeks and beyond, if they're born alive, they get incorporated into the infant uh, mortality statistics. And that's why I was wondering um, if we have a higher rate of delivering preterm babies in the U.S., we, I think we do, and we also include those as part of our infant mortality instead of, in, instead of calling those fetal deaths or stillbirths. So there are some countries that actually, that if, a, 
if a baby is born, say, at 21 weeks and they, and they weigh less than a pound, they will not consider that a live-born infant. So therefore, it doesn't, it doesn't fall into their infant mortality statistics. So in looking at this, for example, in the Euro, the, the, what's called Europarastat Network, it's a, kind of a perinatology network um, among European countries, they don't consider any baby born prior to 22 weeks. They don't. They do not um, consider those to be live-born infants, even if they're born with a heart rate. They, they because they don't offer resuscitation or, or the the way that they've made the, kind of parsed out the definition, they don't actually include those. So, so that's a little misleading because we do include anything from from 20 weeks on if they're born with a heart rate, and most babies at 20 weeks if they are delivered prematurely, either, you know, intentionally or unintentionally, um, we do include those in our, in our statistics. So some, some count 22, some other countries besides the United States count 22 weeks, others 23, and still others actually will not include those in their infant mortality statistics until uh, beyond 24 weeks. Yeah, we were wondering how Iceland was by far the lowest in the world with less than one baby out of a thousand that dies before the age of one. How could they be so low? The U.S. is like around six. Well, you know, I think that's, um, again, there may be some misleading things in there. You know, so one of the things I think Iceland came out with <laughs> where they, they announced relative, uh, it's been a few the years now. The cure of Down syndrome, yes. Yeah, we they, they announced that. that they cured Down syndrome. And, you know, and, unfortunately, or eliminated, yes. <laughs> eliminated Down syndrome. Well, well, the truth be told, what they did was they eliminated people with Down syndrome. Exactly. And I think there's a, there's a difference in, in yes. the way the yes. way that reads. So. So yeah, so you know when when the leading cause of infant mortality in the United States is you know genetic, chromosomal, um, and or you know significant uh, birth defects. If you prior to being born, if you eliminate those people, um, then yeah, you're not you're not going to then include those those individuals as part of your. Um, your infant mortality statistics. So, you know, I hate to say it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's padding the numbers in a yes. sense, but, but it really is. So how, do, how does the number one cause in the U.S., genetic malformations, uh, compare to the number one causes in other countries of infant mortality? Is it also genetic malformations? It probably it may still be. Um, you know, I I don't know. I don't have all of that data sure. you know in front of me to look through. Um, but uh, you know, I definitely think that there's. It, it's definitely going to play a role in that. Um, I'm not real really well versed in knowing what the causes are in, in all the other countries, though. So the the causes in this country with which you are familiar, what per, you know, how much of them are due to. Um, the health system, and how much are due to the behavior of the, the mothers? I think it's about probably 50-50, I would say. You know, um, part of the issue, you know, we, we have a significant number of um, preterm births. So things, you know, such as multiples, um, issues related to, the, you know, problems with the uterus and the cervix. Um, and, and one of the things that I, I do think is not um, shared with a lot of folks in, in the way that I wish it were, um, and, and this is relatively fresh on my mind because we recently lost a, you know, a set of multiples, um, is that whenever, you know, there, there was a time where fertility became very, they were very aggressive. You know, I recall in the 90s and kind of the early 2000s, um, higher order multiples um, where, where there were multiple embryo transfers per cycle done um, resulted in higher order multiples and there's a significant um, increase in the incidence of, of uh, preterm birth, especially preterm birth prior to thir- 28 weeks. Um, and you know when, when the vast majority of our infant deaths, two-thirds of them are neonatal, so in that first 28 days, you know you have to know that a lot of those, um, a lot of those deaths are, are related to, to higher order multiples. And you know we have a, there are a lot of infants born you know through, for, for, through in vitro fertilization in the United States. But I don't think that's shared with folks, you know and, and sadly, I, I, I know this to be a fact. Because I do a lot of prenatal consults with moms who have multiples, um, and you know, it, it, twins or or even triplets, um, and and they oftentimes look surprised when I share with them, you know, that uh, the likelihood that they're in preterm labor or the reason they're on bed rest, you know, very early in you know in that uh, that second trimester, you know, into the into the kind of not even making it necessarily 
well into the third, is that you know they the incidence for multiples, especially those um, after in vitro fertilization, the, the chance for them to deliver extremely preterm is higher. And not only is it higher, but those infants tend to be, um, I guess, more fragile, so to speak, if that makes sense. They they just aren't, uh, whenever there are spontaneous singleton, you know, spontaneous twins, um, we, we notice a significant difference with, with a lot of other factors being matched, that the babies born through fertility assistance do not seem to be as robust, and therefore the survival is not as You know, I just saw the first data on that showing that uh, they're more likely to be hypertensive or have high blood pressure. Yes. And, yeah. So that and kind cancers of plays too. into that too. There's a new uh, a new uh, study that came out in JAMA just maybe a month ago that said they're more likely to develop blood cancers if conceived uh-huh. through IVF. So yeah, we're we're learning what some of the problems are with trying to play God in a petri dish are. Sadly. Well, Aaron, you talked about some of the causes with the multiple births. What are some of the health system based causes of infant mortality? So. Give me a, give me an example of the kinds of things you're you're thinking about. Like like not okay. Well, I'll give you I, I will give you an example of something that occurred. Um, you know, in this region, I won't go into the specifics of where it occurred, but we found out uh, Southwest Indiana um, Right to Life actually was able through kind of the Freedom of Information Act to obtain um, something that that called the termination of pregnancy report forms. And what we found is that there are a number of hospitals that were um, actually electively inducing and delivering babies prior to 24 weeks, so sometime after 18 weeks and prior to 24 weeks. And, and they were calling those therapeutic inductions, and the hospital systems were supporting these as, as if they were treating a condition or a cause. And when we looked at a number of these, we found that they were actually – you know, if if a uh, pregnancy, for example, they're, they're, the infant was diagnosed with something such as trisomy 13, which is a, a genetic condition, um, or trisomy 18, which is a, which is an al- also another genetic condition, you know, because those are oftentimes considered to be quote unquote incompatible with life end quote, they were inducing that pregnancy prior to 24 weeks, knowing full well that there that 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 this infant not only because of the trisomy, but just because of the preterm birth, would not survive, but they were not calling that a termination of pregnancy. They were oh, calling wow. it a therapeutic induction, which... Therapeutic which, for what? what you know, exactly. What, you know, what, what is it that's actually being treated? So it's really an abortion. It's really an abortion. There's, there were no other ways. And, when, and so myself and another physician actually asked to meet with um, the providers involved and the some of the leadership in the hospital, and they agreed to meet with us, but they, you know, categorically disagreed with our assessment that these were abortions. And um, what what is interesting is that all of a sudden those forms um, ceased to be; they were no longer completed for those uh, for those anymore from that point forward. So, so really, we have kind of no way of knowing how often that occurs. Um, and is that know, going that's, into that's, infant mortality statistics? Absolutely. So if they're if they're born before 20 weeks with a heart rate, um, they they actually get included in the infant mortality statistics. So what is the you know to shift a little bit? What is our country doing right right you know to reduce infant mortality? Well, I think you know neonatal care um, has has gotten a lot better in the United States, especially in the last you know. I would say 20 to 30 years, um, kind of since the av- advent of of the microprocessors, with ventilators, and surfactant, um, you know the 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 percentage of babies that survive and survive without significant complications from 20 th- 24 weeks and beyond has steadily improved. Um, so I think I think the healthcare um, is getting better. The problem is is we're just getting more um, oftentimes more and earlier preterm babies. And so sometimes, you know, the, the, we're not able to keep up with that. I think we have really tried to focus um, on uh, things such as uh, the sudden infant death syndrome. Um, I think a lot of the, the strategies, you know, safe sleep, sleep practices, um, th- those have helped. Un- unfortunately, those, those have kind of stalled. Um, and, you know, the, the state of Indiana in particular, we, we are kind of on a 
campaign to try to identify some of the causes as to what why those have they improved very quickly with you know the advent of back to sleep but then we kind of we, we have not been able to really improve um, that since then um, you know I think we are working to address obesity even if we haven't necessarily um, been able to do a, a great deal um, with it with it from this point forward. So, what are the simplest thing that a mom listening could do to reduce the chance that she has a, a, a baby born early or a baby that dies before the age of one? Um, I think her overall health is extremely important. Um, I think taking care of herself, um, starting early, and seeking out prenatal care. Um, early in the pregnancy so they can so so that the OBs can identify things that they can do to to assist her and help her you know have the best you know possible outcome um, avoiding you know the things that are the bad habits so so smoking any illicit drugs you know and i think one of the things that we probably at some point as a country need to talk more about um, is you know all of the legalization of marijuana right now that's going on um, that has not been well studied in what what the effects on you know developing baby and then on the baby who is breastfeeding um, after delivery and 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 also I think there's a role that that we're missing in in SIDS for those because I, I sit on a, a review committee for the fetal and infant mortality um, and it seems like a, a, a significant number of of the SIDS deaths that occur within our region, um, there is there at some point either during the pregnancy, um, through through kind of screening methods, there has been you know positive uh, positive drug screens for marijuana, and I uh-huh. think that's something that we need we need to talk about. That's good to know. And uh, vaccinations, how important are they either for mom or baby in reducing infant mortality? Well, I think you know one of the things that that when they started to look relook at uh, pertussis as a as a as a vaccine um and then flu vaccine i think that's extremely important because you know flu seems to have been 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 getting more and more aggressive um in the younger patients and so you know any time that when the baby does come home um with mom either from the nicu or just immediately after delivery you know going home into an environment where where you know the the infant will will not be exposed to pertussis or to influenza in in that first uh, you know six to eight weeks until their natural immunity begins to improve and I think that's always important. And what can you say about the the reduction in measles vaccinations that have been happening in the U.S.? What impact could that have on pregnancies and normal births? You know the the one thing I do that does concern me about that is is rubella. So you know we know that. Um, you know, we had not seen a lot of congenital rubella syndromes uh, for a long time, and then we st- we've started to see those creep back in as as we started to see more and more um, women of childbearing age who have not been vaccinated, so they they do not have an immu- immunity to rubella. And what happens to those babies? So those those typically um, cause some intrauterine growth problems. So the baby does not grow um, as, as, as they normally should, and then they can have um, heart defects. They can have problems in, in which the way the heart's developed, and and may need a surgery um, immediately after birth. Wow. We're going to take a break here and come back afterwards and talk a little bit about the amazing things that Aaron and other neonatologists do with preemies here on Doctor Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking to Aaron DeWeese, neonatologist. And Aaron, I wondered if maybe you could start things off in the second half of the interview here with a story regarding neonatology and kind of what you do on a daily basis. Sure, sure. Um, I have a lot of stories, but probably the one that, that always kind of sits most poignant in my mind is one from from when I was a fourth-year medical student. So in medical school, during your fourth year, you're really kind of trying to figure out, you know, exactly what you, you want to do, or maybe you've already decided what you want to do. And so you, 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 you work to do specific rotations that kind of fit into that. And so I chose to do what's called an acting internship or an AI in, in the neonatal intensive care unit at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. And, and I can remember this one young um, patient came in. Uh, she was a pregnant uh, teenager and 
she was in preterm labor, and she was in preterm labor because she had um, attempted to have an abortion. Um, she had been in an abortion clinic, and and one of the things that prior to the abortion that that they do is they dilate the cervix in order to be able to to uh, abort the child, and as a result of of the what's called luminaria that they had placed in her cervical the cervical opening, um, she had developed preterm labor, um, and the abortion provider uh, she did not make it back to the abortion clinic. She was supposed to come back in 24 hours. Um, so a friend of hers actually called the, called 911, and she was brought to the hospital. So this is a woman who was who was trying to end her pregnancy and. Um, I can recall she was she was in the bed and she was in labor and she was now 24 weeks in one day and and she had told everybody she didn't want this baby she you know actually she just said I just don't want it I don't want it kept saying that over and over and then the baby was born and she looked over from her bed towards where we we when we were you know, we were, she was at, we were basically under this impression that she did not want us to do anything or resuscitate the, the baby. Something that as a medical student, I didn't really have, um, you know, any any say in order to be able to do this differently. But when she saw the arms and the legs moving and the face of this child, she just completely changed her mind. And I remember her her words. She said, "Oh my, that's a baby!" Like as if during this entire time, she had never, no one had told her that. No one had ever shown her a picture. No one had, she hadn't, didn't really believe that this was a child. She just thought this was something else. And, and you know, kind of it showed, you really put a face and to, to the life that, you know, that she had. And, and so from that point on, she said, no, 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 do everything. Change. She changed her mind in an instant. And, and I remember from that point on, she, we, the baby went to the NICU, was intubated, placed on the ventilator, spent, you know, 90-something days in the NICU, went home with relatively few complications for a baby of that gestation, and she was there almost every single day and took the baby home. Holy cow. Yeah, one of my favorite authors, Dr. Peter Kreeft, a philosopher, says that if wombs had windows, everybody would be pro-life. Amen to that. You know, that's got me thinking. You, you working on this youngest extreme of life, probably run into kind of pro-life issues frequently. And even, even with like gestational age, legally a lot of places determine viability to be 24 weeks. But now I understand that you guys are even saving babies that are younger than that. Is that true? It is true. So, you know, one of the things that, that we, we worked with um, the ethicists in, in, within our system uh, to talk about is that, you know, we, we wanted to come up with, you know, kind of this idea that, that where, where is the line being drawn? You know, there, years ago, you know, a couple of decades ago, there were folks that would have said 28 weeks was your line. And then all of a sudden it became 26 and then it's 24. And, and I wouldn't say routinely, but, but on a regular basis, we now have, patients that make it to 23 and a half or so weeks and 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 our OBs in our hospital and our maternal fetal medicine specialists they don't hesitate to to begin talking about steroids and you know and we're we're very honest and forthright with the families about the risks and about the concern but at the same time you know we also we also have seen you know amazing outcomes for these babies when they get the right care so so I do. I think it's a conversation where, and, and who knows if, if in, a, in 10 years from now we're talking the same way about 20, 21 and 22 weeks. So, Aaron, what is the cost-benefit line? Because when I read about, you know, these 22-week babies and trying to save them, they have a, a, a horrific number of problems that they'll have for their whole life if they even make it home out of the NICU. How do you address that? Right. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good question. Um, so 22 weeks, you know, w- when you look at the statistics, I, I don't think there, um, there is really any place right now that it, that it can honestly say that their survival statistics are any better than 5 to 10%. So the, so the fact that these babies, it's, it's unlikely that they will survive even to even out of the delivery room, let alone to to hospital discharge, um, you know, 
only about 5% of those babies will, will survive. So, and of those babies that do, at 22 weeks, there is, a, there is almost 100% certainty that they will have significant um, problems. Such as? You know, so, such as. So, so one of the, the major issues that occur are that the, the lungs really are, I mean, they, they're in the very early stages of development at, at 21 and 22 weeks. So, so even if even if the you know you are able to to get the baby on the breathing machine and do the things you want to do, they they oftentimes just don't have enough lung to survive. So so being on a on a ventilator long term, um, you know having to have a, a, a tube placed in the neck such as the tracheostomy, you know those issues. And then and then there there's the the second you know most common complication for those extreme preterm babies. Um, I would probably say would be intraventricular hemorrhage. So that's a that's a bleed within a certain part of the brain yes. that can lend itself to to significant uh, complications um, such as brain damage and movement disorders and things. So, so you know, I I don't know if um, if it's you're even able to to say on a routine basis that that you would resuscitate at 22 weeks or so. But I think at 23 weeks, you know, there is a there is something we use um, called the uh, it's it's the the NICHD's you know extreme preterm calculator, and it takes into account uh, some of the features, so the weight of the baby, whether whether they're steroids, the the um, you know uh, whether or not they were a singleton versus uh, versus being a twin, so. Um, and and those will spit out statistics, but again, you know, statistics, you know, for for an individual patient are sometimes difficult, um, because really for that individual patient, you know, it's 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 zero zero or a hundred percent. So so I don't know if where exactly if you are able to 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 get a cost benefit you know line per se, um, but I think on a routine basis now in the United States. Um, we we do not question resuscitation of infants 24 weeks on, and depending on the individual characteristics, we will have a very frank and honest discussion with families about resuscitation at you know in in at 23 weeks, um, and really kind of defer to them as to as to you know if things are looking good immediately after delivery, you know we we will offer with their you know with their um, blessing and support, we will offer resuscitation, you know, but but knowing that, you know, what what the numbers are, but I think it's very difficult at this point, given given the technology, that we can do much um, prior to twenty three twenty three weeks. Do you, do you find uh, kind of off the cuff that parents make similar decisions, or or do you find that people presented with those statistics make very different decisions regarding resuscitation? I would say very similar and I think most parents um, opt for doing everything they can to give their baby a chance to live um, even when faced with with some of you know with, with a very frank and honest discussion about some of the issues or complications um, you know one of the things uh, there, there's an interesting uh, um, move going on right now uh, in out in Omaha uh, Omaha Children's Hospital is um, they're actually doing a, 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 dis, a disproportionate amount of care for babies with, with trisomy 13 and 18. And one of the, the heart surgeon who is willing to operate on these babies and, and is doing a, an amazing job, one of the things that he said that we, in, in something I read recently, um, he said that, uh, you know, we, we oftentimes talk about these patients being burdens to society, um, but, you know, sometimes who are we to determine um, you know whether they're burdens or not. You know who is doing the the, the the heavy lifting, and it's usually the parents. So when you when you if you sit down <laughs> and you're honest with the families, um, you know they're the ones who are going to do the, the the disproportionate amount of the care, and 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 so it's it's oftentimes you know we we take we we act as if we're taking the burden on, and and the reality of it is is that you know they're the ones who would be willing to do it, and if and if they are willing and and they and they're willing to do it lovingly, then, then well, we're willing to do it. Aaron, tell us about some of the techniques that help you do this, The what the steroids do in the lungs, surfactant, ECMO. Right. Well, I always say that, um, you know, we get to take credit for improving neonatal statistics, but really we ought to give credit to our, our colleagues in, in obstetrics, uh, honestly. 
because the care for uh, on the obstetrical side just ends up giving us healthier patients and so so you know we we like to we like to take credit for it but honestly a lot of our ob colleagues are just doing doing a fantastic job so you know caring for women um you know making sure that they're healthy throughout their pregnancy and then antenatal steroids so steroids given before the baby is born so the steroids are given to the mother and then that helps improve um, lung maturity and it helps it helps stabilize some of the blood vessels within the brain to decrease the incidence of of the bleeding that I was talking about before. And then surfactant, so after the baby is born. So surfactant is a chemical that that is made, that the lungs make naturally. Um, And the the lungs are, um, you know, not fully formed really until 37 weeks gestation. Um, but most babies have enough lung tissue and will develop lung tissue throughout the rest of their life that as long as their their lungs are able to be to, to, to open and close with relative ease and exchange oxygen like they're supposed to, then then they can grow and they can develop, you know, healthy and otherwise healthy and normal lung. One of the things that's missing though, really in, in enough in enough of a quantity is something called surfactant, and it's a chemical that helps kind of reduce the the surface tension or kind of the stickiness of the lungs. Of you know, so so babies' lungs, premature babies' lungs, tend to to remain shut, and it takes a lot of pressure, and sometimes that pressure can be damaging to their lungs to open and close their lungs with each breath. So surfactant was developed. Um, you know, it's a naturally occurring uh, substance, but but they were able to obtain surfactant from you know, cow's lungs and from pig lung, and and there's even a, a few synthetic surfactants that are made in the lab. And they're able, we're able to actually deliver that into the lungs of premature babies and, and significantly reduce um, the pressure we have to use to, to open and close the lungs. And when the lungs are open, then babies are able to exchange uh, gases. And like the most common surfactant we all see is that bar of soap we might use to wash our hands, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. So Aaron, surfactant is soap. It, it is amazing, these things that can now be done. For, for all of our listeners, what, if, if you had some things to leave them with, what do you wish they knew about either trying to stay out of the NICU or, or things that you wish they knew about NICU care? Oh, I would probably say, you know, that um, one of the things that, you know, it seems so simple, but just taking good care of yourself physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually, you know, from, from early on in life through childbearing age, you know, that, that is probably the single most um, effective thing that, that anybody can do to really, you know, to reduce the, the chance that they will have a baby that end up in the NICU. Um, but, you know, once, once your baby does end up in the NICU, you know, I think if if that were to happen, you know, just just taking an approach that, um, you know, God has a plan kind of for for all of our lives, and 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 NICU the stories that come out of the NICU um, end up being written into people's lives, and and I've seen some amazing um, ama- some amazing people that have gone on to either become nurses within the NICU or become they, they support other families that that are within NICU. So, so you know, just understanding that that even if you know your story leads you in a certain direction, you know, understand that you know that there there may be a plan in that that you didn't see, and you know, and just em- embrace it and go with it. And finally, Aaron, is there a, a website or other resource you can recommend for patients who want to learn more about infant mortality and premature birth care? You know, I think um, the March of Dimes actually does a pretty good job of of, of really approaching um, the the aspects of premature birth. You know, I know that you know there's there has there's been some controversy in the past about um, some of their work related to birth defects, but I think when it comes to prematurity, they do a really good job of of explaining what it is, explaining what anyone can do um, to decrease the the the, the incidence of, of of premature birth, and then, and then really helping and supporting families through their time in the future. Aaron DeWeese, thank you so much for being with us today on Dr. Doctor. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you guys very much. 
And we're back with Dr. Doctor coming to you with the answer about NICU medical trivia. Yes, so this question was about Sabi, a little baby born at 23 weeks, which uh, Dr. DeWeese said was pretty much the earliest that he uh, is, you know, routinely uh, asking parents if they want to do a full court press to uh, save their babies. So this baby was born and is the lightest baby to ever survive to go home. So the question is, did she weigh more or less than a can of soda pop? 12 ounces, she weighed less. Did she weigh more or less than the average cucumber? 11 ounces, she weighed less. Did she weigh more or less than a short cup of coffee? Short cup of coffee is how big, Andrew? Eight ounces. Eight ounces. She was just a little heavier. Holy eight cow. Eight and a half ounces. So was she more or less than a pint of blood? Well, she was less than half a pint of blood because a pint of blood is 17 and a half ounces. And five Krispy Kreme donuts weighs almost the same amount that she weighed. She weighed 8.6 ounces, was nine inches long. Man, that is incredible. Yeah, her mother had eclampsia. Ah, uh, yes which is a condition where the mom has a very high blood pressure that leads to other problems with pregnancy. Man, what a blessing. That's a, that's a success story right there. Uh, it, it's amazing because um, more than half of babies delivered at that point of 23 weeks do not survive. And uh, in the 10 years between 2007 and 2016, there are about 4,000 babies delivered between 23 and 24 weeks of gestational age. Wow. So this is happening more and more. And I think it's it's a good message to folks to, as Dr. Dewey said, God's got a plan. And uh, it's it's amazing what science can help with. Well, we have a couple listener questions, Andrew. And uh, the water question came to us from? James from New Jersey. He says, can you do a show on water? Answer, not that I know of. But he says the benefits of water and especially how to consume water uh, might include drinking water at certain times and in certain ways. And he says we should talk about how to sip water rather than gulping it or chugging it and its health ramifications. Yeah, it, James from New Jersey might have some stuff to teach us. I, I like water a lot. It's ubiquitous. Uh, not only that, it's, it's everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a few things about water. There is no good consensus, at least among medical professionals, about how much water to drink. But a number that's as good as any is the 8 by 8 rule. Eight glasses of eight ounces of water a day. And I would encourage folks to, to follow the color of the urine and shoot for clear urine. And cold water is harder to drink in large quantities than warmer water. And I always, in, well, you got to, it takes more energy and uh, it's slower. A lot of times it, it's slower for the person to drink. And so I, I always encourage folks who struggle getting enough water, set alarms in your phone for every two or three hours and have a glass of water at that time. And when he talks about the gulping it or chugging it versus sipping it, uh, I think the only thing that happens is when you gulp or chug it, you get a lot of air in your stomach. So it leads to bloating, belching, and then gas out the other end uh, down the road. So those would be the advantages of not gulping or chugging. Yes. We have another question, and this one comes from? Uh, this is from Anonymous. Oh, good old Anonymous. That's our most common question asker. She says, or he says, hello, doctors. I want to thank you for your work in providing an authentically Catholic medical resource, which I found extremely comforting and helpful as I study to become Pennsylvania. Oh, it says PA. I guess that stands for physician assistant. <laughs> we are currently studying women's health, and I was wondering if you or could tell us what the Catholic teaching is on molar pregnancies. Molar pregnancies are not little moles on the skin. They have baby moles. No, she says, or he says, I'm a bit confused based on the wording in some textbooks and online resources saying that there is no fetal tissue in a complete mole. Thanks for any insight. With the insight, we have Andrew. Man, that's a great question. And this could probably be a whole show, an ethical show. Molar pregnancies are gestational trophoblastic diseases. And so it's an abnormal growth that can become cancerous that arise from the trophoblast, which is from the fertilized oocyte, the fertilized egg. And so there was a fertilization event that took place there, but the genetics are all messed up. This is a disease process. There's different types where the egg doesn't have any contributing DNA and it's all from the father. There's another type where you have two sperm from the father and one set of DNA from the mother. And these are, these are not viable um, 
fertilization events, but there are fertilization events. So in my mind, I would err on the side of life and respect it as a unique being. And finally, we had a question on uh, climate change and the Catholic response to the world scientists' warning of climate emergency. This is beyond the realm of medicine. Therefore, Dr. Doctor doesn't have any medical advice uh, or words of wisdom on it because it really is outside of our realm, though it is within the realm of science and certainly is a question to consider. I, I always encourage folks, too, to just, you know, just like Sergeant Friday, just the facts, ma'am. There's so many things that are disputed, but, you know, trying to be responsible stewards of the environment while, while understanding the common destination of all goods is an important thing for Catholics. Absolutely. So thank you all for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We come to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Please rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing headaches with Dr. Natalie Manalo. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.